Logic is the last scientific ingredient of philosophy. Its extraction leaves behind only a confusion of non-scientific pseudo-problems and embracing the void. void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 108 of Embrace the Void, where the only logical way is to be positive. I am your host, Aaron, and joining me this week is a powerhouse of trolling philosophy Twitter. I consider this episode to be the next installment in our Better Know a Philosopher series, so I hope you enjoy as much as I did. My guest this week is Liam Bright, assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at the London School of Economics and a thought leader on <laughs> philosophy Twitter. Liam, would you like to say hi to the void? Oh, wow. Hello. I just want to categorically reject the idea that I'm a thought leader on philosophy Twitter, or I pray <laughs> for philosophy Twitter, and it's been, I don't know. Your artisanal trolling is some of the top <laughs> shelf of philosophy Twitter. I think that... Anyone who denies that is clearly uh, got a bad philosophy. Okay. Um, fill in whichever bad philosophy you want to be judgmental of, and that's that's your that's your enemies there. Um, so yeah, um, so welcome. I'm really I'm genuinely excited to have you on here. Um, maybe you could start by giving our listeners a bit of a, a background on how you self-identify as a philosopher. What are your philosophical in-group biases, essentially? Sure. So I'm a philosopher of science and maybe more specifically a social epistemologist of science. What that means is I study how it is the way that science is kind of culturally and institutionally arranged to sort of the group life of science, how those things affect our ability to produce and disseminate knowledge. And so I guess my in-group biases, you know, I, I tend to get along well with kind of science-y philosophers and also people who study social life, group life, social theorists. That's interesting that those two things pair together in your research. I feel like a lot of the perceived antagonism in uh, the Twitter world is, is things like, you know, science and social analysis don't get along or something like that. So, yeah, that is pretty common. And, you know, I, I find that one of the problems is with just kind of intellectual life in general is that everyone is wrong apart from me. And so this is one of the ways that <laughs> tends to come up. Oh, I'm glad that we've got you on to clarify then, since, I mean, I, I gen genuinely agree with you, and I think your number of Twitter followers accurately proves the fact that you were the one that is right. <laughs> yeah, um, no, truth is directly, you know, proportional to Twitter following, so. Yeah. As, as social games go, I think it really has distilled down the understanding of how to measure quality of the argument. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Um, so what is it that gets you worked up as a philosopher of, of social socializing scientists? Right. So I guess like sort of one of the sort of hot topics that I'm really interested in, me and sort of everyone else in my bit of the world, is the replication crisis right now. So we're mm. thinking a lot about why is it that bits of uh, various scientific fields, most famously social psychology, but I would say not most worryingly social psychology, more worryingly like medicine has been really hit badly here. Mm. Um, why is it that many of these fields are sort of fading to produce work that replicates work, which if it gets a result, then we go back and try and do the same thing. We find we get the same results. So that that is frequently failing to happen, and a lot of us are thinking about why, and we think it has something to do with the way science is socially arranged. So that's that's okay. one of the big things I think about. Can you say a little bit more there about, like, how is it that the social arrangement of scientists is leading to these problems? I mean, is it just personal biases, or is it more more sort of systemically sophisticated than that? 
It's a bit more systemically sophisticated than that. Now, of, of course, personal biases come up, so to speak. They're, they're a part of science. Science is done by humans, and humans tend to be biased in various ways. But actually, a lot about the social structure of science is kind of designed with that in mind, so to speak. And so that's one of the things we're better at catching, basically because the way science works is a lot of people are incentivized to catch you out if you do something wrong. Like, like it will be good for my career if I sort of identify a fancy famous person making a kind of mistake. And like, so, science runs on dunking. One. That's what you're telling yeah. me. This entire it's, field. It's just like, I, you know, I, I was kind of joking about Twitter being the perfection of social epistemology, but kind of not, right? Like, but, um, right. So, <laughs> so uh, someone's going to quote me on that, and I'm going to get fired. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's going to be so many things to get you fired for in the next hour. Just carry yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, I will. I didn't like my job anyway. Um, no, I do. Please don't <laughs> fire me. Okay. Um, so, uh, so in some sense, like science is actually reasonably well calibrated against idiosyncratic biases. So that that's not as much the worry, although that does indeed occur sometimes. Rather, there have been sort of features of the way we go about trying to decide what gets published, which has, for instance, led to the replication crisis. So quite mm -hmm. famously, I'm not saying anything sort of controversial or new here at this point, but we had a kind of bias towards positive novel results. So mm -hmm. journals are very interested in publishing, you know, it turns out there's a relationship between X and Y, or did you know that if you tweak X, it sort of causes a change in Y? These things were sort of tended to be seen as interesting, like worthy of communal attention, they'd be splashy, they would get like into fancy journals and people would talk about them. Mm -hmm. But journals were pretty unwilling to publish anything which was then a replication of that. They thought that was boring, that was lower prestige, um, that wasn't the kind of thing which was going to make a splash. But then the obvious result of that is we have a kind of, if, you know, if 20 people go out to try and find a relationship between X and Y, um, 19 of them fail to find it, the only one who the community is going to find out about their work is the one person who does find it. Now, to some extent, sort of the total evidence in the scientific community is actually negative for any of their relationship between being X and Y. And yet, all that would be publicly available is the one positive thing. And hmm. th so that's an example. It's certainly not the only one, but that's an example of the kind of um, some of the way we socially arrange science, in this case, the way we disseminate results through journal publication is sort of like leading to replication crisis because it's leading to results which actually aren't likely to replicate being more likely to appear in the, in the literature. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you think that that is a more sort of substantial problem than sort of the more commonly called out sort of leftist bias of researchers? Do you, do you Are you worried about leftist bias within any of these particular fields? Like if you're being if you're being centrist for a moment? <laughs> um, well, so some people, and I think this was a sort of a result of social psychology getting the attention it got. There was an initial round of hypotheses, roughly to the effect that, well, what's going on is that people are sort of more likely to accept, I don't know, the kind of center-left, Democrat-friendly kind of things which social psychologists tend to like. They're more mm -hmm. likely to accept those results, and so they're more likely to appear in the journals, even if they're kind of lower-quality science. And so they get less questions asked of them and so can sneak through, but then end up not being replicated. That was one hypothesis. Now, maybe I can send you a link afterwards because I forget the name of the study off the top of my head, but I recall someone trying to test that and not finding that uh, like political valence of the results seemed to like relate mm -hmm. to likelihood of correlation. I think I know the study you're referring to, actually, yeah, that like the, that uh, liberal and conservative results failed to replicate at the same rate or something like that. Yeah, so I, I seem to recall that. Now, you know, that that's, that's only one test, so maybe that turns out not to be mm -hmm. pertinent. But, you know, insofar as that has been tested, the results haven't been in, in its favour. And and I think what's more, I mean, I'm impressed by, like, the range of fields in which we're seeing replication crises. I mean, as mm -hmm. I said, I also mentioned um, uh, medicine, and I think there's also been some problems in neuroscience, and I've heard discussions at least in um, economics about the extent to which we can expect the replication crisis and it strikes me as kind of now maybe economics is likely to always have a has its own political valence although it's less likely to be the kind of democrat friendly centrist stuff mm -hmm. um but like medicine you know it doesn't usually have any political valence and yet they're still having this replication crisis there and so kind of right. I, for me it it, ne it looked like the problem was too general for like the particular biases of social psychology to be the to be especially relevant that, that but you know that, that was just my instinct it awaits actual testing
I'm curious, and you know, I didn't prep you on this, but did you would you agree that there's likely something along these lines that's going to happen with evolutionary psych as well, or what is your? Because it seems like evolutionary psych is in the hot seat on, in, in terms of being a defense for a lot of arguments right now, and also being potentially pretty questionable once you get into specific claims. What do you, what do you think on that? Well, I mean, I, I don't really know much about evolutionary psychology, so I, I can't okay. really say. Like, the, the, the general worries people have about evolutionary psychology would make it kind of uh, a step up if it was able to have a replication crisis, right? Like, because usually, usually uh-huh. the concern is that kind of, okay, there's a bit where they do some experimental work and there's a bit where they tell an evolutionary story about why we might expect that result. And it's kind of the relationship between the second bit and the first bit is a little bit opaque. Now, you know, if things got to the stage where it turned out like there were serious, like pre- predictions coming out of the link between the evolutionary story and the particular experiments done, and those then weren't replicating, that would actually be, at least there were predictions. Um, mm-hmm. That said, you know, this is, this is me repeating kind of a, a general word on the street worry about evolutionary psychology. I haven't looked into it much myself, so maybe that's an unfair characterization, but Fair enough. You know, from, from what I see on Twitter, I'm often not impressed, but again, like that might right. not actually be a very good... Twitter is, is pure gospel. Got it. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. speaking of Twitter, there's been a fun dust up that I need your help with because I am a lowly ethicist and not an epistemologist. What is what is wrong uh, or what is the right theory of truth? Let me put it this way. And why is it not the correspondence theory of truth? <laughs> okay. So for all of your listeners who have made a number of good life choices and don't know what you're referring to. Yes, um, good start. Uh, um, what happened here is James Lindsay, uh, uh, an academic, no, he's not an academic, I, I don't know, someone being paid by <laughs> like some plucky millionaire somewhere. Let's well, not clear which Job unknown. Uh-huh. Yeah, job unknown. Um, but with a, he, he, he certainly isn't a fan of a lot of what goes on in the social sciences and humanities. And he uh, came across a tweet by a philosopher, I believe it was Rachel McKinney, where she said something about not believing correspondence theory. I didn't actually see the initial tweet because it was deleted by the time I got to the kerfuffle. Mm -hmm. Now, James uh, Lindsay was incensed that one would not believe in the correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth is the idea that um, for... Um, a, a sentence P to be true, P has to correspond to the facts. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. And he thought that uh, if you don't believe in correspondence theory of truth, you're saying that you don't need to gather evidence about what the facts are in order to say something is true. And then that's clearly, that's outrageous. That's exactly the kind of postmodern neo-Marxist grievance studies or something, something which is which is ruining the world right now. Right. Um, so, um this was basically sort of totally confused. I, I don't think James Lindsay really knew what he was talking about. Um, and so uh, I'll go through and, and right. so, like, let, let me just say, so, to be fair, right, like a normal individual, a non-philosopher who hears what you just described might not un- see anything on the surface wrong with that, right? We have a claim that's about the world. There's a fact of the world out there somewhere. The, t- the two things correspond, so the claim is true, right? That's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Statements about the world, right? 101. Um, so Absolutely. what's the problem? <laughs> so so for one thing, I think partly there was just a sort of confusion in the whole discussion, right? Because sure. the correspondence theory of tru- truth is a theory of what it claims to be, what it takes to be true. That, that I mean, it's in the name. Uh, it's not a theory of how we discover what's true. That's just different things. So it's perfectly mm-hmm. consistent with the correspondence theory of truth that the way you should work out what the facts are isn't by gathering evidence, but you should consult the oracle, uh, you know, pray to Odin. You should do whatever. Like It, it doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about how you discover the truth. So the whole sort of basis of Lindsay's attack was that uh, failure to believe in a, only the correspondence theory of truth delivers a kind of sensible epistemology. But the correspondence theory of truth doesn't deliver any epistemology. So that, that was way off that was one thing mm-hmm. for another thing many philosophers <laughs> do not believe the correspondence theory of truth and that's because usually people philosophers just find it kind of uninformative or somewhat mysterious to say okay p is true just in case the facts correspond to p well maybe you're just saying something kind of trivial there like you're just saying p is true just in case well it says the world's one way and it really is that way and that's a kind of informal gloss on what it is to be true and that's fine but it doesn't really tell us anything i mean there's this great article by a Ghanaian philosopher quasi redu 
where he notes that uh, in Tui, which is in the Khan language, which is the language, which is his native language, the translation for something is a fact and the exact translation for something is true is is is, is the same. Like so, like the correspondence mm-hmm. theory of truth translated into Tui and then back into English. Literally, it says, you know, P is the case just in case P is the case. And, you know, mm-hmm. great, that's a tautology, but you haven't told me anything about truth. It's kind of a totally uninformative thing to say. It, like, So it, sort of, it appears illuminating in English because you happen to use two different words for this, but you haven't really informed us of anything. You've just kind of given us a, you've just given us a sort of fairly uninformative glass. So right. that, that's one kind of way correspondence theory of truth. It just doesn't say anything. Now, what some philosophers try and do is therefore sort of beef up and say, no, no, no I'm going to start... I'm going to give you a theory of what facts are and what correspondence as a relationship is. And then it'll kind of be informative that P is true just in case this correspondence relation holds between the sentence and the facts when I have this metaphysical theory of the facts. And you can do that, but then you quickly start getting into some quite like obscure and complicated metaphysics. And it no longer seems so common sense at all. And you start looking like you're doing well, actually, the kind of speculative metaphysics, which many of the sciencey people who Lindsay will want to appeal to, would actually probably dislike if they were to see what it looks like. So it yeah. quickly becomes kind of mysterious and spooky. Which is why he immediately checks out and says, none of this is worth doing. It's all a waste of time. Um, exactly. But yeah, I, it seems like there's not a lot of good solutions that don't immediately run into those kinds of troubles. What would you say you for you personally? Do you have a theory of truth that you prefer at this moment? Yeah, so th- I mean, I don't have any one in particular, but there's a class of theories which are called deflationary and relatedly minimalist theories of truth. Mm-hmm. And here what people do is they try and think sort of, what's the point of having a truth predicate? Why in a language do you have any means of denoting is true? And the thought then is, well, it it does something like the following work. It allows us to kind of express agreement in certain kind of ways. So I can say, you know, everything Shakespeare said about the human condition was true. And by doing that, what I do is you can like get a load of biconditional statements, statements, not biconditionals, but statements of the form, you know, if Shakespeare said X, then X, if Shakespeare said Y, then Y. And I don't need to be able to tell you what in particular those sentences are, because by saying everything Shakespeare said was true, I've just told you, you know, whatever they are, I'm agreeing to them. Mm so truth does this allows you to like express agreement in these other kind of contexts in it has certain mathematical uses i won't go into here but it allows you to kind of speed up certain kind of inferences and then the idea behind the deflationary or minimalist theory of truth is to say like kind of we can just say all truth is is kind of a logical device for doing those kind of things it's just a sort of uh, a, li- mm-hmm. a handy linguistic tool which allows us to quickly um move between certain kind of statements to certain other kind of statements and that's great but that's all it is i don't need any kind of metaphysical theory now like it logic, turns like out a logic then, gate basically right like in, in programming just like a basic logic yes or no gate kind of situation i don't know maybe, maybe i'm maybe i'm using <laughs> the wrong terminology there yeah go ahead sorry uh, but you could hope using the right terminology it could just be my ignorance but in any case um so the idea behind a deflation and minimalist truth is to try and give an account of truth which kind of says that truth is that and nothing more than that. So one common example of this is to say, okay, here's a kind of schema for axioms. We'll say phi is true if Mm -hmm. and only if phi. So snow is white is true if and only if snow is white. And then say, okay, for all sentences which are like of that form, Mm -hmm. we will affirm them. And our theory of truth is just saying, all sentences of that form are true, I reaffirm them. Now, that can't work entirely. That turns out not to be a consistent theory, but like adding bells and whistles to that is roughly mm-hmm. what people try and do. So like the deflationary theory of truth is to try and like just give this kind of quasi-logical, minimalist, linguistic-y kind of idea of what truth is, and hopefully we can avoid having to do any spooky metaphysics while still saying something sensible about the truth. And, and note that, of course, like in endorsing this kind of theory rather than the correspondence theory. I'm in no way saying that therefore you could, the, you don't have to gather evidence if you want to know what the facts are. And it has nothing to do with that. Like Lindsay was just like totally confused. Right. And so um, I think the deflationary theory or some version of deflationary theory is very common amongst philosophers. Uh, it's, it's what I tend to like. And okay. so it's, it's kind of nowadays the, the main rival, I think, if anything, maybe probably the victorious rival to uh-huh. um, correspondence theory. 
So it just it, it avoids getting into a conversation about the external world so that it can just be a functional system of predicates. And then some people misunderstand and think that that rejection is like a rejection of caring about what is true in the real world or something. Is that sort of yeah, wrap I mean, up I, the confusion a little bit? Well, yeah. I think that was kind of, that would be a generous way of reading it. I doubt <laughs> that what happened is Lindsay had heard of this and thought, well, you know, ultimately she should talk more about the world. I think Lindsay just hadn't heard of this and so had no idea. Sure. Fair okay. enough. All right. So uh, let's switch gears a little bit here because I wanted to talk uh, in our main in our main thrust here about um, a, a set of views that I learned a little bit about in undergrad, but I'm not as familiar with. Your handle on Twitter for folks who don't know is at last positivist. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit more about the logical positivist. We used to, we, we in the, have in the past done a better know a philosopher segment, and we'll think of this as a modified better know a set of philosophers, perhaps, <laughs> um, because you stand pretty hard for the positivists. And I was, especially within the field of metaethics, which we'll get to, they were kind of the villains of my story. So um, maybe let's start with the beginning and just, can you tell people what is a logical positivist? Well, I just want to note that nowadays, logical positivist is just the villain in everyone's story. And fair enough, so fair if enough. ever you hear a view attributed to positivism, you can usually just substitute in, like, what would a stupid person think they'd think? And that will, like, roughly convey to you what the person means to convey by saying it's positivist. But okay, the logical <laughs> that's, positivist... That's a very emotivist description of what people mean by positivist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh, that joke this will make a lot of sense in about 25 minutes. Just keep up. Foreshadowing that. This is sophisticated. Okay. Um, so, lo logical positivism was a kind of intellectual and actually, in some ways, aesthetic and political movement from the early 20th century most famously centered around Vienna in the Vienna circle, although there were kind of relevant and allied movements in Germany, Berlin, and uh, Poland, Warsaw, and even in some ways in the UK. Um, and what these philosophers tried to do, if you stay at a very high level, was kind of bring to bear new discoveries that were being made in um, logic and uh physics, especially sort of um, general relativity, um, and sort of bring to bear insights and if anything, something like the spirit or the attitude of the work that had gone on there to philosophy and maybe also to society more broadly and try and sort of create a, a kind of more scientifically friendly and sort of rationally and also cooperative mode of living and of philosophizing together that's at a very high level i think we're going to go into some of the details as we go on but that would be mm -hmm. that's the spirit of the movement at least so we're talking um be slightly before world war one up through world war ii-ish it sounds like that like these folks are um sort of carrying on i would say as the project of enlightenment um philosophy and trying to incorporate scientific uh, um, principles, like you're saying, into in, into the philosophical world. Is that? Yeah, and it, and it's and it's it's relevant that it's not just philosophy to the history you just told, because I think that's mm -hmm. about right for the sort of the heyday of the movement was the years you just said. And the mm -hmm. reason it ends in World War Two is because they were sort of connected to broader social and political movements, and they tended to be they tended to be socialists. They were all left wing in some regards, and some are sort of more stringent Marxists. And when the Nazis came to power, they all got killed or exiled. And sort of that was the end of the movement. Pretty but much. I thought the Nazis were socialists. I'm so confused now. <laughs> my history is all thrown asunder. <laughs> like, what do you just, mean you that these, these philosophers with these Jewish kind of names didn't survive <laughs> by being socialists? Um, yeah, so who were our, our top um, doing really good philosophy while running away from the Nazi positivists? <laughs> Well, so like um, some of the famous names associated with uh, Rudolf Carnap, who's probably my personal favorite, Otto Neurath, Moritz Schlick. Um, he wasn't really one of them in doctrine, but certainly very involved in the movement. Kurt Godel, the famous mathematician, mm -hmm. Hans Hahn, Olga Hahn, Marie Neurath uh, in the UK, Rose Rand, and in uh, Berlin, 
uh, Reichenbach and Hempel, and there's a bunch of very famous Polish people whose names I'm not going to get. Mm-hmm. But it's okay, you've um, done really, you've done much better than I would have so far. Yeah, so there's just a sort of there's a whole group of kind of intellectuals who are in a lot of communication with each other in this time, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, uh, I, I think we should focus mostly on the Vienna group because that's the group I know most about. Great, and um, let me put it this way. Uh, sorry, hold on. So, yeah, so these folks were doing a bunch of work in logic and philosophy of science, and we'll, um, we'll talk about, we'll get into some of that, I think, a little bit as we go through here, but um, to make things as accessible as possible to folks, I think let's talk about the sort of central principle that was con- sort of identified most heavily with the logical positivists and is also in sort of popular culture, I think, been their downfall. Do you want to explain mm-hmm. what is the verification principle? Yes. Yeah, so the logical positivists were really associated this idea, probably first in some sense formulated by Wittgenstein, kind of, at least as relevant to them, which is that, for a statement to be meaningful, it has to be the case that you can either verify it by means of gathering empirical evidence, or it there is some kind of mathematical or logical proof you could give for it. And so the idea was that sort of meaningful claims are either what they called analytic, which is mm-hmm. their claims which are in some sense just a a byproduct of the language we, we, we're using. So they might they would use, for instance, it is not the case that it is raining and it is not raining. They'd say that's just a tautology. That's an instance of the law, law of non-contradiction. And that's kind of mathematically provable or logically provable because it just follows immediately from the axiom, which is the law of non-contradiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one kind of claim they would allow. Or to be meaningful, they have to be sort of making a sort of empirical claim about how the world is, which we could, at least in principle, verify by having making the right kind of observations so for instance if i say the cat is on the mat then there's a way the world has to look and appear and um feel i guess mm-hmm. maybe smell for a cat to be on a mat <laughs> and so as long as if i look, put myself in the, in the position where i should have the cat on the mat style experiences i would indeed have those and that's what it sort of that's what guarantees that the statement the cat is on the mat is meaningful and so, so that was their big claim. That all of the meaningful claims will, will turn out to fall into one of these two types, analytic and so provable in some way, or verifiable and so sort of related to empirical evidence in some way. No, so, so yeah, so, and these would be called um, synthetic a posteriori claims versus uh, analytic a priori claims, right? I think they were yeah, pretty be, strongly in thinking these were, these were the two options. Yeah, and so so th- so what they're really trying to reject is what's called uh, so uh, <laughs> now I'm getting wrong. synthetic a priori. They want right, to reject the idea that you can make apparently sort of substantive claims, but which don't require empirical evidence. And so, you know, if I say uh, God is love, then mm. I'm apparently making a substantial claim about this being God, namely that it's maybe identical with or somehow very much possesses the property of being love but they would say like no because there aren't there's no such thing that's certainly not provable there's no sort of mathematical theorem which that mathematical theory in which that's a tautology and nor is there empirical evidence you could gather for it and so while it appears to be making a substantial claim about god and love in fact it's doing no such thing it's kind of it's neither true nor false it's not the kind of thing that can make a true or false claim about the world Right, great. So, and for folks who are keeping track at home, I've been trying to build a web for them of the relationships between all of these um, different philosophies. It's We would say that they were pushing back on the Kantian version of these kind of synthetic a priori, which were in turn a pushback on Hume's fork, right? This fork of the world into the synthetic um, a posteriori and the analytic a priori, into the, in the, the empirical and the purely rational logical um so these guys are then taking after hume is that a fair thing to say well that's certainly been a dominant interpretation for many years so for instance okay. one of the uk um positivists was aj Ayer, and that was more or less Ayer's interpretation of what the positivists were up to i'd say more recent historical scholarship on the positivists tends to emphasize actually their connections to a certain strand of kantian thought in central europe at that time so Mm -hmm. if you look at a lot of what they were doing 
I mean, attended to, for instance, Carnap, very famously, his uh, advisors were Kantian philosophers when he was doing his PhD. Um, and the sort of the works they would reference in their earlier stuff would tend to be Kantian philosophy. And so I think mm -hmm. they might have seen themselves as actually just kind of doing Kantianism, but better. So they would say that, like, <laughs> the thing, the rest of Reichenbach as well. Uh, that's so, really good. Yeah, go ahead. So the the sort of the, what's gone wrong with people thinking there were these kind of, subs I mean, this is actually, I, the way you can tell the story is they think that the lesson of um, Einstein's use of non-Euclidean geometry, mm -hmm. um, which, so one of the paradigm instances of uh a synthetic a priori claim for the Kantians was, you know, space is, has the form of Euclidean geometry. Okay. Euclidean geometry accurately describes space, where that seems to be the case that we can, we can make accurate claims about the world external to us, but we do it on the basis of this kind of purely a priori reflection. And, you know, then Einstein came along and had a new physical theory which involved non-Euclidean geometry. So what's going on, right? Isn't that meant to be sort of, we already knew for pure reason that that couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. And the positivist sort of interpretation of what happened here is we should understand the kind of the a priori claims, the sort of, for instance, the geometry we use in describing physical space, that these claims are more sort of, they're matters of linguistic convention. It's like we have decided to frame our theory in a certain kind of language, the language of a non-Euclidean geometry. And like, that's fine. And it's sort of, we have therefore adopted conventions which give us new a priori truths, which kind of make certain claims about how space is structured, provable mathematically. But mm -hmm. it's, in the end, it rests upon a conventional choice that we've chosen to speak this way. And I think this mm -hmm. is still in the spirit of Kantianism. There's still like this division between the things we impose on the world by means of um, our rational... Um, so which we, the things we impose on the world in order to like give our empirical investigations sense in a certain kind of way, in order to be able to frame them and describe them linguistically which is the only way they can be done but mm -hmm. where, where where people went wrong is when thinking that these are kind of substantive truths about how the world is rather than conventional truths about how we're using language and so i think many of them saw themselves as kind of improving on the kantian project by recognizing linguistic convention as playing the role of what can't form as truths of pure reason yeah that makes a lot of sense and um from what i had read it seemed like a lot of times they were taking the approach that by clearing up the language side of things, you eliminate the need for sort of mystical metaphysic activities. Yeah. Um, exactly. And you, you mentioned Ayers in particular, who I will put a pin in that for a second, because he's my particular um, logical positivist stalking horse. But I'm glad to hear that there are logical positivists who maybe take a slightly different approach. But um, I want to I want to uh, go back to discussing the verification thesis mm -hmm. for a second, because... Um, like I mentioned, I think it's often pointed to as like, and then they were all wrong, the end of logical positivism. <laughs> so like the major dunk, as I was taught it on the verification principle, is that it is self-defeating because it can't itself be verified. It's neither an empirical nor an a priori claim. Um, mm -hmm. how, how do you push back on that? What is your counter dunk to that particular dunk? You know, I really regret endorsing the idea that all philosophy is dunks, but um, uh, just, I mean, I guess if I'm going to get fired, it's, it's, there's no point worrying it's about it now. It's too late. It's too late. Um, but okay, so I, I think the sort of the counter dunk, I tried to say, um, is is the idea that uh, think think about the element of conventionalism, which I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think their idea is something like the following, or at least here's how I would try and reconstruct a rationale for their idea. And I think maybe this was in Carnap. I'll actually see it more familiar in, in ancient Chinese philosophy, if you want to discuss that. Anyway, mm. the, the idea is that, um, okay, so which language we choose to speak, that's a matter for convention. It's not sort of, the world doesn't force us to use Euclidean or non-Euclidean geometry. We decide which of those we're going to do. And we decide on the grounds of what we sort of, convenient for us or like it, how well does it serve our pragmatic practical goals so saying something like you should use euclidean geometry that's neither true nor false but that's okay for them because that's more like a sort of a command or a request and we don't necessarily expect would you come over here please to be the kind of thing which is true or false that's it's, it's okay for us to say that's neither true nor false mm -hmm. so saying would you use euclidean would you kindly use euclidean geometry shout out to my bioshock fans um 
that's kind of um, that's neither true nor false, but that's fine. And I think that what they would say is, okay, would you kindly use a language in which the principle of verification is true? So that statement, that's neither true nor false, but that's fine. That's a request that's not meant to be true or false. But then within the language which they're asking you to adopt, or within one of the languages which they're asking you to adopt, it would be kind of a priori provably true as a feature of the semantics of that of that language, that all of the claims formulated therein are either related to empirical evidence or mathematically or logically provable. So within mm -hmm. that language, the verification principle is analytic a priori. It's something which you could prove. Now, there's no a priori proof that you should use that language, but that's uh -huh. fine. They don't think there have to be, and they, they don't think languages are the kind of thing which you can a priori prove you have to use. So what they're saying is like, it's pragmatically useful to use a language which satisfies the verification principle. Um, and within that language, it will be analytic a priori. So it will, it will be self-endorsing. Um, mm -hmm. So it's kind so of I a category will... error to say it has to be verified in the way that it is t saying that other things within that system have to be verified. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's a category error to say, like, the claim you should use this language is should has to be verified, yes, because mm -hmm. that's not the kind of thing it should be. And and I think that sort of matches sort of the spirit of what they seem to want to get out of verificationism, which was partly they thought it would sort of remove needless disputes. Like, you know, if we're arguing about something which is neither resolvable mathematically nor... Um, something which you can settle by means of empirical evidence, they kind of think, you know, what are you doing? Right? Like you, you've just kind of agreed that there isn't really evidence which is going to settle this, so so, so stop it. And that's, that's got kind of a pragmatic feel to it, right? It's saying, don't waste your time, mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, and also, a lot of what they wanted to do with it, actually, again, relating to the political context, was they often used it to kind of sort of bash fascists, basically. I mean, to say, you know, <laughs> the the claims that the Aryan oh, race Oh, win has me a, over, don't you? Mm. <laughs> So, like, you know, they, they, so the famous target of Carnap's polemic was Heidegger, who was basically the Nazi party in-house philosopher. <laughs> the, a lot of their other uses were often directed at the Austro-fascists. And sort mm. of the general claim is, you know, people saying the Aryan race have a great destiny before them. But, you know, that's just neither verifiable. It's not verifiable. Right? Like, it's not the kind of claim which could be tested. And they think deliberately it's, it's obscurantist. It's used to kind of pull the wool over mm. working people's eyes and make them think there's something there when there isn't. And so what they kind of wanted the verification principle to do is help them in ideology critique. But in that way, it's kind of, it's a kind of practical goal. It's saying the verification principle prevents certain kind of propaganda and ideology from being effective. And that's a good thing on broadly moral or humanitarian grounds. So I think that actually this pragmatic argument for the verification principle is, I think it was kind of, it's at least in the spirit of what they had in mind. Yeah, I think that's a very sim sympathetic way. I guess, especially for me, I I do see the value in that project, and I do think it is important to try to cleave reality into the parts that that is fruitful to have debate over versus not. And I I am glad that they wielded it against the fascists in that way. I guess mm -hmm. the difficulty that I had with them, and maybe we can move to talking about this a little bit, is how that cleaving. Um, led to a world where for most for many people facts were on one side and values were on the other and along with values went ethics and things like that which ended up being viewed as kind of um not real do you feel like that was the overall project uh, or, or part of their overall project or was that specifically a subset of like the airsian kind of um logical positivists I don't even think, I mean, Ayer was himself also an anti-fascist activist. He was very mm -hmm. involved. He's actually one of the founders of the um, of the contemporary modern movement for LGBTQ rights in the UK. So like these, these were not people who tended to think that like once you've separated something out as a matter of value, that it's unimportant, it's not worth doing. Like sure, the, their, their actual behavior doesn't, doesn't ver back that up. I was about to say verify it, but it's overused in this context. <laughs> um, so... I also, I just want to have this on record somewhere. This is going to be disjointed, but just to have it on record. Some of the more mathsy listeners might be thinking, all this talk of if something's, math something's a mathematical claim, it has to be provable. Didn't I just mention that Godel was one of their group? And actually, their thoughts on how to respond to Godel are super fascinating, but too technical for this context. But I just want to tell anyone having that <laughs> thought, go read Carnap's Logical Syntax of Language. It's all about that. Anyway, okay, so did it end up happening that the logical empiricists uh, thought that kind of matters of value to sort of sidelined as unimportant. Well, 
I will say, I do think that one of the things that seems to have happened from reports of people in Oxford or in the UK Oxbridge system at the time, just looking something up, is uh, that you'd got a, basically a bunch of smug graduate students, read Aya, and then went around being sort of dismissive, like, oh, that's just metaphysics, whenever anybody tried to sort of raise moral claims. And mm. so there's there's a currently um, project to recover the work of some women, I think it's called the in parenthesis project, um, some women who are um, in, I think, uh, Oxford or Cambridge, I forget, I'm, I'm forgetting disgracefully, but um, who are in sort of UK acad- academia at the time, and um, who like they found that they were really sort of put upon by these IR uh, fanboys or these sort of dismissive positivists and who sort of weren't willing to take ethical work seriously and they really had to sort of like mm. fight for their place at the table. So I, I definitely think that happened, but I, I, I just inclined to say like, like the British ruling class are a sort of smug, stupid and useless group of people. And so if you <laughs> give them any idea, they will interpret it in a smug, stupid and useless way. And that's what they did then. And that's just the way the British ruling class are. So you can't judge ideas by what the British ruling class did with them because they just never do anything good. But- that's fair. That's fair. Though I, though I do feel like American conservatism has picked up that ball and continued to run with it on this particular with, you know, facts and feelings kind of front. Um, I feel I, I feel uh, that <laughs> oftentimes when people, especially on Twitter with Hume profile pics, um, <laughs> cite, cite Hume, what they're actually citing is Ayer's interpretation of Hume as a strict emotivist who believes that, like, the fact part of the claim and the the value judgment part of the claim can always be neatly cleaved apart, and that one is meaningful and the other is an expressive, emotive boo or hurrah kind of thing, right? That's that's would you agree that's more of an interpretation than necessarily directly comes from like the famous Hume quote about the is art fallacy? Oh, it's so it certainly doesn't come from Hume, uh, mm-hmm. but like there is something in an Aya famously has the, the Buhara theory comes from Aya, right? Where it's right, it's mm-hmm. when I say something's bad, it's as if I've just sort of made the claim in a peculiar tone of horror, as I think his phrase, right? Um. And so, uh, you know, like th- th- that's that's picking up on something which is there, and and I think it's sort of in response to that. There's a few things to say. Firstly, I'd say just want to note, and this is kind of what I was driving up before. There is an extra layer of interpretation going on in assuming that the things which are neither true nor false, because um, after all, that's what the verification principle is meant to be sort of picking out the kind of claims which are capable of being true or false. Mm-hmm. The things which are neither true nor false, which aren't in either of the categories the verification principle allows for, saying that they're therefore unimportant is itself a kind of value claim. And so certainly it's not the kind of thing which is it's going to be a, a true false claim. It depends on you're, you're adopting a certain attitude to them and it's not forced on you by the verification principle or anything like it. Mm-hmm. In fact, like, I mean, as I said, Wittgenstein is often the person who this kind of verificationism is traced back to. And, you know, if you read Wittgenstein's Tractatus, it's it's kind of clear that he thinks only the important things are the kind of things which can't be said under this, right? It's like all of hmm. the most important things are somehow sort of like unsayable and yet still very important um, is something like the attitude of the Tractatus. And so the originator of the theory had almost the other, other way around. If you're just concentrating on the facts, you're sort of shallow and you're missing out on what really matters in life. So instead of um, it being, we should, we can't debate these things because they're not worth debating. It's that we can't debate them because we lack the, the means to f- effectively debate them at the level that we need to, or in the ways that we need to. Well, it's, this would get into complicated matters of how you read the Tractatus. In a sense, he thinks there's nothing to Not debate. Not at all. <laughs> right? but, but, and yet also, like the things about which there is nothing to debate are the most important things there is, to speak a bit paradoxically. Um, okay. So that, that does complicate matter of the exact type of mystic he was. But um, in <laughs> with regard to the logical empiricists, I, I, I just say, you know, Let's set aside Aya's very crude version of what to say about claims like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's good not to steal or whatever. Um, uh, I think that you don't have to have such a crude boo-hurrah theory of these things. So what's important to the logical empiricists is that 
you know, if they're such that they're neither provable nor evincible empirically, then you, you know, don't don't fool yourself into thinking that they're either true or false. Now that they think, I think that they thought that that very recognition had some moral significance. I mean, so again, like the kind of things they have to fight, they were sort of fighting against were claims along the lines of all good Aryans have a duty to serve the fatherland. And, you know, and they think it's important to know that, you know, people are going to purport to prove that thing to you by means of citing some facts about what God expects of you or what duty and nation and race demand, etc. And all of these are kind of pseudo arguments. You, they, they, they cannot possibly be driving true, true claims. So it's like important to like realize ethically that, that we're not in the business of saying true or false things here. Rather what's going on is kind of, we are evincing our attitudes towards certain kind of states of affairs or people or groups. Mm-hmm. And the one plausible way of thinking about what ethics should do is like, if we, you know, we should think about what kind of attitudes we want people to have and try and align our society, align our social teachings such that we sort of generate in people the kind of attitudes which, for whatever reason, we've decided are to be preferred. And so if, for instance, you think it would be good for the world to be kind and benevolent and peaceful, then you want to produce in people the kind of attitudes which are the downstream of that. And so they would say, you know, it's good to be kind, meaning by that something on the lines of expressing their support for kindness by such mm-hmm. statements and encouraging others to so do. So you sometimes get these sort of um, what are called pres- prescriptivist ethical f- metaethics, um, like mm-hmm. R and Hairs, which are downstream of this, where what people analyze moral statements as doing is like evincing an attitude and sort of requiring that others trying to bring it about such that others share that attitude. So if I say kindness is good, I'm sort of trying to sort of encourage others to, for everyone, in fact, to share my attitude to kindness. And so that's Mm -hmm. one understanding of what's going on in in moral claims. I mean, I I actually think that's a pretty psychologically plausible claim about what's going on in moral claims. That's sort of, we're simultaneously trying to sort of make clear how we intend to respond to the world and also in so doing, trying to encourage others to share this response and join us in sympathy or solidarity. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think I'll stand by this as as a pretty plausible moral theory yeah i mean i think the the virtue theorist in me especially is sympathetic to this kind of habituation model of of Mm. social ethic and like it's not that i think i mean i honestly think that we don't need an either or in the sense of that that's clearly a lot of what's going on in our social engagement on this and we need to have this conversation about are any of these claims true in more robust objective kinds of ways and i think it's really interesting what you were saying about how maybe some of their anti you know anti realism or however you want to frame it is a pushback on the overwhelming um evil ethical realism that was sort of <laughs> threatening the world at that time and i do really i've thought about this a lot as a meta ethicist as i've struggled with these kinds of questions because i'm i'm very sympathetic to um the Schaefer Landau kind of moral realist view um and i i I think there are arguments on either side that are really important, but I also think that a lot of the times what we're doing, even at the meta-ethical level, is a kind of corrective, like what you were just describing at the um, social level, where we're we're trying to lean people back towards objectivism when they get a little bit too anti-realist and vice versa, uh, (laughs) in order to sort of maintain a, a balance of... Um, sort of concern, but not overwhelming moralizing. Uh, would you do you kind of agree at all with any of that? I mean, I agree with some of it, but I, I, I guess I'm I'm not really persuaded that we especially need realism. I'm not really persuaded that it sort of especially matters whether or not um, whether or not our moral claims are true or false. I, I, I often I sometimes get the impression that in philosophy, people kind of use realism as an approval word. So. Like it's like when, when I'm when I say I'm a scientific realist, I'm I'm kind of telling you I like science. That's the part of what I'm trying to do. I mean, this is what I think many people are doing. It's like when I say I'm a moral realist, I'm kind of just saying you know I think morality is important. Now, now I think it's important that the positivists weren't using realism in that kind of approval way. So it's they don't mm-hmm. it doesn't detract from the importance of subject matter. And I I don't really I've never really got why it matters if like when I say kindness is good, that's a true statement. I, I ma- it matters to me that people are kind. I care about that. I'm invested in that. Do I care that it's true that it's good that people are kind? 
I, I don't know, like not not really. Like I, I just want people to be kind. That's what I want. So I, I've never yeah. really sort of got the 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 base idea that somehow like it matters that not just that we endorse certain moral claims, but that they be true. I, I've never I never sort of felt that pull. I I get that and. I agree with you that I do. I think a lot of moral realists, or, or, or that there is often this tendency to associate moral realism with it being like an, an a, a very strong endorsement of ethical claims more generally, and as a pushback mm. against the kind of, well, this is just what society says, or you know, none of that is real kind of, um, you know, booing of ethics to, <laughs> to use Ayer's language. Um, but I also, for me personally. It just seems to be a true claim that there are objective ethical truths. Like, I'm just, I'm compelled by the argument that when we fully understand what we mean by an ethical claim, like you ought not to torture conscious beings, we mean a claim that is clearly stance independent, that is not determined by our preferences or feelings one way or another towards that particular claim. That's all that I think is essential to the realist position. And I mean, I think it is is important for a variety of reasons, but I do agree with you that like, if that weren't true, all of the evolved adaptive justifications for ethics would still be there and Mm -hmm. still be good reasons. And, And for the most part, the system I think would carry on fairly similarly to the way it currently is. I just have, I also think that it's objectively, I just also think it's objectively true that there are objective moral claims like, yeah. So, 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 okay. So that's fair enough. Cause I mean, it might just be, or it could well just be that sort of what one thinks as to kind of this kind of semantic realism or anti-realism about moral mm-hmm. claims is just independent of what the, what one ought to do. And it just, it happens to also be true that we should be semantic realists for some reason. I, I, I grant that that could well be the case. I'm not an expert in matter ethics, um, mm-hmm. but it's just that insofar as people often rate, you know, people sort of somehow think that, uh, if you end up an anti-realist of some sort, then, you know, you're halfway down the road to being Ben Shapiro. I, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I never really got that. In, in fact, I've always considered it rather yeah. odd as a picture of how we go about working which moral claims to endorse, right? Like, I, I for instance, also endorse that torture is wrong. But it kind of, mm-hmm. it has sort of nothing to do with what I think about metaethics. If someone was to really persuade me that a uh, platonic Platonism is true, and there are true forms of what's good and bad, and it's about as objective as it can get. And the form of the good happens to partake in the form of torture, and so torture is good. Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't care. I just I just wouldn't change my moral behavior. I don't care about. That. That's not why I think torture is bad. That's this is no relationship to my reasons for being. Interestingly, the way you just described that to me is what I mean by an objective moral claim. Right? <laughs> Even if there were this thing called the form of the good that were God, right? You know, like this is why I think that you know, um, divine command theory is not a form of realism, it's a form of subjectivism, is because, like, even if there were God who were the form of the good, who had created morality himself, told me that torture was actually moral, I would just think he was still wrong about that. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's just to sort of link up multiple strands of the conversation. I would, the, the absolute uh, best Einstein quote, this is, I mm-hmm. noticed because I, it was quoted by one of the positivists, and I forget which one, is, uh, he was asked what he would have done if the experiments hadn't gone his way and his theory hadn't have been confirmed. And he responded, then I would have pitied the Lord because the theory is true. <laughs> yep. yep. That's, that's I mean, confidence. I, it, you know, it's it's bad because as a moral realist, I spend a lot of time trying not to sound like a dogmatist. <laughs> but, <laughs> and like, the, you know, I, I totally agree with you about the Shapiro thing. Like, Shapiro thinks himself a moral realist. He thinks himself he the defender of the moral truth against us postmodern anti-realist, you know, neoliberals. Um, so, like... I get, and this, you know, when I engage with folks in the atheist and the skeptical community, I'm very sympathetic to that they are coming from a place where they have probably been abused by a kind of moral realism and that they found in science a a way to push back on that abuse and that they they are very skeptical of any claims about objective morality coming from anywhere other than themselves. I get it. Um, But I do think that, like, we on the left benefit when we can take up the language of no this is really true these things are really wrong and and mean it in a way that 
you know, when we, when we're pushed on it, we don't immediately go down to well, we as a society have agreed to this or something like that. I see a lot of cultural relativism that that just it fits naturally into that worldview, and there hasn't been a need to step up that particular game, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's my way of saying yeah. I'm sympathetic to everything that you're putting forward, and it's an endless struggle. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very relatable. Do you um, have any final thoughts on what we should take away from the logical positivists before I uh, drop you into the lightning round? Sure. Um, logical positivism is true. Karnap did nothing wrong. And all of your readers, should ju- listeners, should just unambiguously endorse it. Because it's verified. It's verified, yes. It's got a little I, blue I, check right next to its name. I, I asked God and this is what he told me. So pass it on. <laughs> Okay, wonderful. All right, so lightning round time. This has all just been a setup so that I could get you into this position so that you can later get canceled on Twitter, obviously. Um, As for those who need reminder, rules go uh, real or not real are your options for as long as you can last. Um, You don't have to define what those words mean, so you can cop out later. Um, Are you ready? I was born ready. Is Is your readiness real? No. No, okay, good. You're on your on your track here. Uh the external world. Not real, very fake. Very fake. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness. Fake, not real. Illusion. <laughs> Qualia. <laughs> so fake. Like, yeah, not real. <laughs> Double plus fake. <laughs> yeah. Uh free will. Not real. Come on. <laughs> Selves. <laughs> not real. Bloody hell, this is easy. Okay. <laughs> uh personal identity not real Mm, genders not real races not real species not real oh man it's gonna go it's gonna go the full way here people this would be this would be a first morality just as just discussed not real therefore (laughs) unimportant thoroughly covered yep (laughs) Uh, by extension rights i'm gonna guess no, no nonsense on stilts not real there we go there we go beautifully quoted uh knowledge no, not real. <laughs> like, anyone who's spent any time on Twitter knows that knowledge isn't real. Good, good. Uh, modalities? Not real. Mm, gods? Real. Wow, look at that. Look at that, people. Society. Oh, the first one I'm talking about. We live in a society and yet not real. <laughs> That's uh, my favorite game in the world. Um, numbers. <laughs> Not real above 17, real below that. <laughs> Abstract entities. Uh, Not real above 17. <laughs> uh, chairs. Not real. I have a BuzzFeed article about this. Not real. Okay. All right. We'll link your, we'll link your not real article. Um, science. Not real. And natural laws. Not real. Wow. So so just gods. Gods are the only real things. Gods are the only real things. Absolutely. <sighs> that that I'm impressed, sir. I didn't know how trolly you would you could go. And that is like shooting the moon trolley. That is like <laughs> Queen of Hearts, all the spades trolley. That is I spent wow, months meditating in a cave yeah. to reach this moment. So. <laughs> That is epic, epic level troll. I'm I'm deeply impressed. Um, I, I have very little to add to that. I am I am in utter awe of your work. Um, so, do you want to tell folks where they can find your other work, <laughs> your less important work than what you just did here? Um, yeah. So, if for some reason you want to read my inferior work, then. <laughs> You can, I just have a website, Liam Kofi Bright. If you Google it, it will come up. It's a Weebly website. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, as I was mentioned, at Last Positivist. Um, and I guess that's it. Those are the only two places I exist, and I don't really exist. So. Or they could come take classes from you, I suppose, at the London School of Economics. Yeah, but who can afford that? Anyway, I'm going to be fired right. off the end of this. So. <laughs> right. You're going to have to move into professional podcasting like um, the rest of us failures. Um, Oh, thank you so much, Liam. This has been absolute joy. I really thoroughly appreciate it. You are a must follow and everyone should join Twitter just to experience the the late stage horrors of the society we're living in. Um, Thank you so, so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. 
right. Thank you so much to all our listeners and especially our patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our 20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you, as always, to our $40 top tier, clearly supports us deeply, Dave Maslich. You all are heroes. We really couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to support the show, uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on uh, whatever podcast app you use. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And support us financially, if you can, at patreon.com slash embrace the void. We really couldn't do this without you. Because remember, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 